0: From Holland to Hampton, from Brisbane to Brussels, we tell the stories of the people who make the world of international law and business turn. We give glimpses into their lives and provide insights from their experiences. These accounts come from every sector and every industry around the globe. Simply put, and without further ado, I am Chris Campbell, and you're listening to Tales of the Tribunal practice meets personality hello and welcome back to tales of the tribunal the show where practice meets personality with you as always it's me chris campbell and hey look listeners don't look at me in that tone of voice all right i know i know that there has been a whole week additionally in between episode one of season four and the one you're currently listening to why well Travel has apparently returned post-COVID-19, and it took some getting used to in order to balance production and travel schedules. Hopefully, we will have all that ironed out, and we are looking forward to continuing on. With that said, thank you for coming back for another episode, and let's just jump into this week. I am fortunate enough to be involved with a number of initiatives across the international dispute resolution space. Things that are more technical in nature, like task force committees and helping with articles to other projects and some that are more focused on the people themselves in the field and their access to it. One of those organizations is REAL, Racial Equality for Arbitration Lawyers, which was founded back in 2020 by three friends of the show, of Baltag, Rekha Rangachari, and Kabir Dugal. Since then, REAL has played a substantial role in creating more opportunities and visibility for ethnically, culturally, and racially diverse professionals in the international dispute resolution space, and has been supported by a steering committee of people and professionals from around the world. For me personally, I've had the chance to connect with practitioners from around the globe. And one of them is our guest today, Mr. Fernando Tuba. Fernando is an Argentinian lawyer And aside from working on real, he spends much of his time working in the realm of Investor State Dispute Settlement, ISDS, and writing articles about the practice area and what can be done to make it better. He's written a number of articles and is prolific in the international arbitration community. In today's episode, we talk about ISDS, the problem of double-hatting, and a number of other important topics. So settle in and enjoy my conversation with Fernando Tupa, and we'll see you on the other side of the show. Hello and welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal with Chris Campbell. I'm your host, Chris Campbell, here to tell you another tale, another story from around the wide, wide world of international law, dispute resolution, and business. Listeners, I have a very special guest with me today in the digital studio, um, none other than a colleague of mine from Racial Equality for Arbitration Lawyers, or REAL, and someone that I've gotten to know through the field here over the last couple of years. I'm speaking, of course, of Mr. Fernando Tupa. Fernando, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Chris. Great to be here.
0: Awesome. Wonderful. And well, Fernando, for the listeners at home, so for those that may not have uh, come across you just yet, we'll start with the question that we ask all of our guests here on TOT. Who are you? Where are you from? What do the people need to know?
1: Well, my name is Fernando Tupa. I'm a partner at Curious Malay Prevost called Um uh, I'm currently based in Buenos Aires. I was based for, for a long time in New York as well uh i mainly work on investment arbitration and also some international commercial arbitration and and yeah i'm very involved in the field i i i, I like very much uh international law and international arbitration and and that's why it's so great to be at this show
0: <laughs> fantastic sure and so let's let's take it let's rewind just a little bit um so from buenos aires argentina yeah yes okay. exactly great and so i mean you know you're now in doing investment arbitration uh did you know you always wanted to be a lawyer or you know take us through that journey how what how did you end up becoming a lawyer in the first place
1: um yes i think i always wanted to be a lawyer i mean obviously i mean i, I always liked and especially international law at some point i i um you know thought about being like a diplomat or, or sort of uh, uh, you know something related to to international law in a different way but I think since I, I started being, you know, exposed to international arbitration, I always knew that that was what I liked. Uh, and because sort of combined a lot of interests that I have, uh, I, you know, I like very much, um, international disputes. I mean, I, I always like, you know, I have a very diverse background personally, and I have, you know, I like, I like very much studying different languages, traveling, and, and I always like sort of the private and, and public, uh, international law area so especially investment arbitration and and, and the sort of international commercial arbitration issues that I work on are, are ideal because they sort of combine all those interests and all that you know background that I, that I have
0: sure no that makes sense um, I guess the, the the natural question would be uh, it sounds like you had a desire to be a lawyer. But I mean, international arbitration is very, very much a sort of specific corner or specific little niche within the world of international law and the legal practice more broadly. So what were the specific steps? Was there any like sort of uh, any specific moment that led you down that path?
1: Well, I think, you know. You know um just honestly, one thing, you know, being an Argentine, I mean, especially when I, when I finished law school, um, in terms of like, you know, timing, it was like the big uh, crisis, Argentina crisis, other than one thousand and two, and two. And actually, Argentina, I think, you know, until probably today, or it's it's about that, it was the country with mo- most disputes, especially investor state disputes. And at that point in time, you know, uh, I think just being exposed to all that in the newspapers and all these, you know, all these, all these, you know, especially exit cases that started coming after the 2001 to crisis in Argentina. I think that got me really, um, you know, involved and interested in that area. So, um, so I think that, I mean, obviously I liked international law and, and after starting to know, I mean, that was the time actually that investment arbitration in particular started like booming in a way or started like really, you know, getting more attention. So I think I, it was a, it was a mix, a mixture of things. On the one hand, like my interest, the other hand, like sort of the timing when like all these fields really started moving and, and and you know, and and, 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 and blooming. And so our, I think all those things, you know, kind of came together and, and that's why I, I just liked you know, once I started getting exposed to international arbitration, especially investor state arbitration, I sort of knew that that was what I liked.
0: Very well, very well. Now, you said you spent some time in New York. What was that about? How did you end up in the Big Apple?
1: Yeah, well, um, I um, I did an LLM at, at, at New York University School of Law. Uh, that was 2006, 2007. Um, and after my LLM, I, I I started actually working at Curtis as a junior associate. Uh, I took the New York bar, and then I was there for uh, in New York in total for almost nine years. Wow. So I was, okay. It was a long time I did like. Yeah. So I, I was that's what we're basically, you know, I uh, I uh, and then yeah, I, I was able to work, you know, with all the partners there and sort of like um and, you know, just really the practice. I mean, I was I was sort of lucky because the firm I work, I work on Curtis, like really started their arbitration, their you know, like, like strong arbitration practice about those years when I when I joined. So I was I was able to, uh, you know, to be there from the from the from the start of sort of the practice, like when this practice really started more developing. So, I mean, I, it was very you know interesting and I was, you know, able to work. And, you know, until today I work, the work, the way we work is very integrated. I mean, we have in, it's not like one office specific does something. Sometimes we work with teams, with people uh, that are uh, based on different offices. So. Uh, so that's how it started. I mean, it just—it was, you know, I—I I think I also when I when I when I was studying at NYU that you know I I also focused my my LLM on international law in particular and on investment arbitration. I was I was a research associate to Professor Andreas Lohenfeld, who passed oh, wow. away a few years ago, and I also I think that also prompted my interest in in the field and uh, and. And, you know, and, and I was fortunate enough that when I started, when I joined Curtis, they started having some big investment arbitration cases. And I was just right on since since this, since I started on, at the firm working on those cases, I think. And, you no, know, it was kind of a natural development, all that, you know, ended up like uh, I ended up like being very involved in the field sort of because of all these things that happened to me at, <laughs> at that time
0: sure no i mean that, that's quite the journey um well look we we definitely have some uh, some guest specific questions we want to jump into here in a little bit But one thing I, i'm curious about before we get there is you know what do you have any projects or any extracurricular things that are keeping you busy in the field right now
1: well i i i have a few i mean i have been like you know participating at some conferences uh some teaching some as a lecturer at some in, you know, in arbitration courses. I mean, we have been trying, I mean, I have, it's sort of a project that hasn't really been finalized yet, but it was just kind of stopped due to the pandemic, but we're putting together a sort of training for uh, government officials in investment arbitration in investment state in Spanish because there are a lot of in, in English, but no course specifically in Spanish. Uh, we're involved in some project, uh, I was involved in some project, on, but, you know, we never, we have to start like really finalize it now after the sort of people can start traveling again. Uh, And, uh, and yeah, just, I mean, publishing a few things here and there. I mean, I was, I was participating last year at at the report, the IBA report on enforcement of arbitral awards, for example, in Argentina, I did the, wrote a chapter about Argentina on that, on that, on that area. I mean, whenever I can, I mean, it's sometimes hard because of, 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 you know, the the workload is is sometimes very heavy with all these cases, but whenever I have a chance to do some extracurricular activity, I really enjoy it. Uh, Especially also, you know, being in touch with other colleagues, with students. I mean, it's always uh, a lot of fun. And also, well, Rio that we might talk later on, it's another project that, you know, I've all been involved on. Absolutely, sounds
0: like you've got a a full plate.
1: (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> exactly,
0: um, but but it sounds like a couple of those things are 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 things that serve as a great segue into the things that we wanted to, to chat about today. And again, um, for those listening at home, Fernando, you have, you mentioned it, but you're also extremely involved in the world of investor-state dispute resolution. Now, you've been active in this uh, area of practice, but a lot of people may not appreciate how. What are some of the differences between investor state dispute resolution or arbitration and commercial disputes? What are some of the things that come to mind for you?
1: Well, that's, that's a great question, Chris. I mean, uh, if you think about the procedure, I mean, obviously, there are differences because the cases are much larger, in investor state arbitration, than a commercial international commercial arbitration. But I think it, there's a lot more than that. I mean, not just, obviously, you have the applicable law where you have all these background in investor state arbitration that in a way, you know, you don't have sort of case law, but you do in a way, because you know, everyone you need to to know what you know what other tribunals decided before when you argue a specific, you know, when you make a specific argument, you you have to to delve into all these specific issues. Uh and when you have, you know, when you're dealing with commercial arbitration, it's more, you know, generally treaty interpretation or some sort of um very more uh, specific area. And here you have also investor arbitration is very complex because you also have all these, uh, let's say, mixture or mix, mixed um, mixture of things, because you also have to look at local law for certain issues. You have, you know, the technical aspect, economic aspect, or the, you know, whatever is the industry that you're, you know, they're working on, and also these sort of of inter- investor-state kind of case law that has evolved over, over the years. That's on the one hand, but on the other hand, I think the other interesting aspect is dealing, especially, you know, Curtis, the the the, the, the firm I work on only represent states and state and state entities generally in investor state and and, and in, in international commercial arbitrations so it's 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 very different to work with with states and state and governments in general and state entities that to work with just private clients the way you know it's the way things are organized the way you know you have to also you have to be very sensitive to a lot of issues that you, you don't necessarily encounter or you know have to face when you're dealing with international commercial arbitration so i think Although they are similar in some way, obviously procedurally speaking, and they're very different in the way that you know when, how you have to handle a case, and 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 and, and you know and, and and the things and generally what 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 is at stake, right? I mean, although they're, they're very large, sometimes commercial arbitrations, sometimes the the publicity and and that you know that that you get in, in investor arbitration, there are issues sometimes that are you know in the newspapers of the, whoever you know whatever country is, is being you know sued, so. There there are things that that transcend, that that go well beyond the dispute that you're working on and and that might have an impact and even a chilling effect uh, with respect to some other states.
0: Well, sure. And well, look, the question that I'm sure that you get all the time um, is, well, how does one break into investor state dispute resolution? I mean, I I think a lot of people can imagine how you might end up getting uh, commercial work. But I mean, investor state is kind of a different category. I mean, what does that look like? How does one do that?
1: It's a, that's a that's very good. That's a good question. I mean, it sometimes I think it's it's a mix. I mean, it, it, it's it's it you know it's it's sort of a blend of different things. Obviously, you have to be sometimes working on some sort of firm that that does that type of work. It's not so easy to break into that that world, and then also, um, you know, you have to I guess specialize on on that area. Try to really you know study uh, you know do whatever. For example. A, an LLM or, or some other degree that sort of focuses on that area. Start getting involved in conferences. Try to start getting into the field, uh, uh, studying the field, and then and then obviously it's a it's a very difficult area to work on. I mean because as you said, it's difficult to break into. I mean there is a you have to prepare yourself, but also I, I mean there is also a sort of of you know let's say a degree of of luck that you are have to be there at the right place. You know working on on on, on on you, know, on you know working at a law firm or you know or sort of organization, sometimes you can also work from you know from a government perspective internally as you know as as I know the organization within the government that deals with these sort of disputes. But you have to be sort of you know you have to prepare yourself and then you know sort of be at the right place. But uh, but obviously it's it's an area that is growing and, and although initially there were like less opportunities, uh, I think now you have more law firms and even governments themselves. Have bigger organizations within the governments dealing with these, these disputes. So, and also you have different, you know, NGOs. You have different sort of, uh, let's say, uh, other, other, um, other ways that you can get, get involved. Especially initially in your career, I think you know a lot of arbitrators work independently. Also have clerks or or different uh, or different people who help them. So I think there are different ways to break into, but obviously it's not a very easy field uh uh because he's is sort of you know sort of very specialized. But I you know I don't think you, you people especially young people don't have to be they don't have to be discouraged. I think because you know you you see all the time young people getting involved in these in these sort of disputes. So I mean I mean my especially the I think the number one rule is prepare yourself. You know, just study, you know, and, and the opportunities might come up you know no, in your I- way. I, I think that's
0: well said. And I mean, it's like many other practice areas. It's about finding uh, where the work is, um, making a skill set that makes you attractive to the clients, the countries that will want to be hiring you or the investors. Um, and it's it's the similar, but just in a different skin, you know? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Now, staying right here on the topic of investor state dispute resolution, um, those of us that have been active in the field, or if you follow business journalism over the past several years, more than several years even, um, investor state arbitration has kind of come under a lot of scrutiny, you know, images of like smoky backroom deals and like, you know, all sorts of like corrupt lawyers like making all sorts of weird uh, decisions. I imagine you don't think that that's a fair caricature or representation of what this process looks like. From your perspective, what do you think of some of this scrutiny? I mean, what are some of the accusations that you've heard and
1: what, what are your thoughts on? Well, I think one, one accusation that it's, you know, in a way, I mean, it is true in some degree. I mean, and it's, it's, you know, the accusation that sometimes, you know, for example, double-hatting or the or arbitrators that you know that that work as counsel and also as arbitrators. I mean, that that is is sometimes problematic because they do have to argue one case, um, you know, as as a, as counsel and then they they get to decide the same issue as an arbitrator. That it's a little bit uncomfortable, I think, uh, and also for, and it's something that, it, in a way, I think I don't know, just just undermines the legitimacy of the system. That's why I'm kind of against that, and 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 also I think the other the other area where I see that, you know, in a way, I think uh, some of the criticisms are 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 correct with respect to to investor state arbitration is the you know sort of review of awards, right? Because sometimes. Although sometimes uh, you know, especially when you you don't get an appeal, you know, you just get an annulment and the scope of annulment is very is sometimes very limited. But then also even if you know if you get too very technical on that and, and you and you and you apply a very let's say narrow sort of annulment uh, ground or annulment you know review system, the problem you have is you get decisions that are wrong and are not corrected. And I think that that undermines the system. I mean decisions that are wrong, I mean, they're, they're you know, fundamentally wrong, they have, there has to be a way to correct them. Because especially, as we said, in investor state arbitration, what is at stake is very high. We're talking about, not, not in terms of money necessarily, I mean, sometimes cases are not, you have commercial arbitrations that are much you know, larger in terms of, of, of amounts that sometimes what some of the investors take cases, You know, uh, what is at stake on those cases. But I think what, what's important is that some, sometimes... You're talking about regulatory aspects of, of a state, or, or the possibility to regulate in good faith, and 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 some of these decisions are are very important for a state and might have you know as, as we discussed before a chilling effect uh, on regulation in the future and also on what other states regulate. So I think um, it's it's I mean it's important to 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 address all these deficiencies and all these criticisms that the system has in order, uh, you know. To, to perceive that the system is, you know, it's it's it's, it's legitimate and 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 everyone, all the stakeholders are happy, states and 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 also the investors, right? That like both are getting sort of a fair trial. Well, that's
0: right, and I mean, I think the fundamental thing too, though, is that at the end of the day, especially if a state is unsuccessful, uh, well, and even in the, the the time that you are going through the proceedings, you're talking about huge amounts of money potentially uh, that are public assets. They're potentially being uh, transferred into uh, private hands, and I think that just—I don't know—when you describe it like in the scope, sometimes that can come across as a little bit um, sketchy. Um, so, so you know, but I, I think a lot of what you've said is is, is right. I think that um, we could, we as an industry or a field, can maybe do some things to to sort of uh, educate the public more about what the process is like. Um, it sounds like you're doing exactly that by making some of these materials in, in, in Spanish. Was that kind of part of the
1: the idea behind why uh, you're to create some of these materials? Yes, I think that's 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 right, Chris. I think it's uh, it's important that you know. Uh, I mean, not all all materials are only in English. I mean, you, I think you know, Latin America is is huge, and you have a lot of countries, you know, Spanish-speaking countries, and I think it's also very nice. I mean, Spanish is also one of the official languages, you know, languages of the convention. You know the UN. I mean, you have a lot of of, of 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 materials in Spanish, even cases only in Spanish. So I think it's also nice to have international and especially investor state you know international arbitrations, investor state materials in Spanish, uh, not only in English. I mean, I think you can you can also reach a different audience. And sometimes I think it's that's why I think it's also nice to create those materials in Spanish, and you know that like you don't only have them in English. I think the same would be great doing sometimes the same thinking in French, for example, which also, you know, uh, I think a language that has, you know, great reach, in the world. especially to educate the government officials on all these issues to have, you know, materials in their native language.
0: Sure. No, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, yeah. one of the things that you mentioned just a, a couple of minutes ago was this concept of things that maybe make the, the public feel a little bit uh less calm about the the investor state uh process and that's this concept of of either double hatting or even or even challenges to arbitrators um can you can you give us some more context about what the either you know one of those issues might be and and kind of how some thoughts on maybe just as a practitioner in the field what you think about them
1: well i think i mean as, as, as i just said before for in terms of double cutting, I'm, I'm against it in investor-state arbitrations. I think it's fine. I mean, obviously, it's very hard for a practitioner to break into, you know, to be an arbitrator. If, 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 you know, you cannot just have one appointment and then just, you know, just resign from all your counsel work. That's not that's not feasible. But I do think that, you know, in a way that, you know, especially when you're you're transitioning from from a, pr- a private practitioner to to an international you know, arbitrator. I think I mean one way would be to keep i you're mean, able to ha- to do some double hatting when you're talking about commercial arbitration but then when 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 it comes to investor state arbitration I don't think you it, it, it's it's I mean in terms of in order not to undermine the legitimacy of the system I don't think it's, it's it's ideal for people to be working as counsel in some of these investor state cases and also as arbitrators I think there is some sort of uh you know uh some sort of uh unconscious and, and or conscious bias when you're deciding some of these issues because you know what you're you're arguing something in, in one you know before one tribunal and then you you are in another tribunal the same issue and the issues are although obviously not identical they're very similar issues that all these issues are very uh, i mean each you know each each tree is different but in a way the language of these trees are very similar so i do feel it's it's it it, it just doesn't help uh, you know the legitimate of the system to have people uh on you know on, on, on both sides. I think in a way you have to choose. Or you're you're gonna be counsel or you're going to be an arbitrator in these cases. You can always do you know international commercial arbitrations and you know and do both. But when when it when it comes to investor arbitration, I think we should be a little bit more
0: careful. So no two hats.
1: You, you don't like you don't no want to wear multiple hats. <laughs> <laughs> Not in investors arbitration, no. I think obviously I I do acknowledge that you know it's Sometimes you you want to get you know the best people, and sometimes you know the most experienced people happen to be people who also work as counsel. So I know that it, in a way uh, that you know might be detrimental in a way to to you know to, to the pool of arbitrators that that you, that you you get, but also that might also be good in order you know we discuss that later. But in, for diversity issues or to expand the pool of arbitrators, because you know you always get to you know you get the same very limited pool of names. In, the, in these cases. And sometimes I think you would have to open up and expand that pool a little bit more. And sometimes with these sort of restrictions, that might be a good way to force sort of uh, people or, you know, or, or the system to start, you know, just thinking about other people as well. And, you know.
0: Oh, absolutely. No, I mean, and if it's the same people over and over again, um, it does sort of just become a sort of that, that stale sort of rep- representation. And, and, and there's real question as to whether or not, the, the client's interest are actually being fairly and accurately represented, um, both in counsel but also for the arbitrators that are adjudicating the cases. Um, now the, the second point that we talked about or referenced there briefly, at least to my question, was um, challenge, challenge to arbitrators, and that's a slightly different issue. Um, that's generally speaking where there's something that the arbitrator may have done or maybe some work that they've done previously that might make them not a great fit to sit as arbitrator in one of these cases. Can you give us some context about when you hear challenge issues, what does that typically look like? And um, and, and and thoughts on that? I mean, do you think that there needs to be some more clarity um, in the investor state
1: system? Yes, I think that's, that's a good question, Chris. I, I do think that that we need more clarity. I mean, there were some decisions uh, at some point in time, especially a few years ago in, you know, under the convention where there is a whole debate about what is the, you know, the, the threshold where, you know, you have to have a you know sort of manifest you know in, you know partiality or manifest bias, and you know I draw, you know rules have a kind of a lower threshold. I think all that discussion, sort of you know should I mean we we shouldn't have that discussion. I mean I think honestly the threshold should be the same, and and I would lower it a little bit more. I think that that I mean in order to as as we were discussing for I mean the the, the states and also the investors need to, to, to perceive that the system is fair for them if they want to stay in them and that the, the system is legitimate. So I think what, what you have to avoid is for arbitrator, arbitrators that there is no perception of bias in the arbitrator that is, that is you know, this deciding a case. So I think any, let's say, when there is a perception of bias, I think that should be the threshold that we should take into account. It's very difficult to prove that someone is you know, manifestly, let's say, biased or partial so I think the, the 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 only way is to is to lower a little bit the threshold and, and and think about perception of bias because it's true that sometimes you know it's you cannot really say that someone is is not going to be impartial. There is no evidence, you know, to to prove that. But sometimes it's very clear from the circumstances of the case or what the person has written before. For example, when there is an issue conflict, sometimes uh, question or or when you know what what the person has decided before or or what other case he's involved on, it's very clear there is a perception of bias. And I, I don't think we 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 should let that go. I mean if there is a perception of bias and in order for you know for the system to be legitimate and for everyone to feel that they are getting you know their first day at court, uh, I think they they you know we, we we definitely have to to avoid those sort of of of, of, of situations and 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 you know and, and challenges should be you know upheld when we get those sort of perception of bias situations, I think.
0: Yeah, no, I I think that, that that's an important question. I mean, and I'll tell you, you know, in the time that we've been running this humble little podcast, you know, we've had arbitrators and academics and professionals appear on the show and well, now, as we've heard in other cases, sometimes people will say, oh, well, they appeared on Tales of the Tribunal or this other podcast that involves my employer or something like that. And I mean, that even something as innocuous as that. I mean, and typically, you know, there hasn't been, you know, the suggestion that appearing on a panel or appearing on someone's podcast is enough to be biased. But I mean, these are real questions that we're dealing with. I mean, a fair process. And, you know, we need probably do need some bright line rules for for what's acceptable and what's not. I agree. I think that's 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 the way to go. <laughs> <laughs> no, that that's fair enough. Fair enough. Um, you know, shifting a little bit from investor state um issues specifically, and talking instead about private practice and, and the work that you do there. Um, you know, you work in big law, and you know that that has been known to be a, a quite a grueling pace sometimes. Um, but you still find time to teach and to work on extracurricular activities. You named, you talked about several just in this conversation alone. And then you publish articles. Okay, now either you have found, you know, some sort of time matrix bending paradise where you have extra time, mm-hmm. or you, you know, you have some ability to to get things done still. Can you talk a little bit about how you find how you find time to get those things done? And do you think that, or your, I guess your perspective on being involved with extracurriculars as a junior practitioner?
1: Yes, I mean, sometimes, I mean, it's, I would say it's, it's challenging. I mean, sometimes I, I even would have liked to done, you know, that, that I would have done more than what I, what I did. I mean, sometimes I have unpublished articles that, you know, I, I want to have some time to finish. And, and you know, and, and, and a lot of things that, you know, you start, uh, then, you know, they end up, you know, in the middle and you never get to finish them. I think one, one, one uh, important rule is to start small. I mean, you, 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 you have to be, especially when you are a, a junior practitioner or when you're at the early stage of your career, you should start with a small project. It could be like, you know, writing, in, you know, in a blog or doing like an article on you know, with someone else on a very specific issue. I mean, you have to start small. Sometimes I think when I feel that I failed in a way with some of my projects is when I try to do something that it's too big, it's going to demand too much time. And at the end of the day, you're, you're not going to have that time. So i think you know what one good I uh, not say advice piece of advice would be just try to find something small specific that you know you can handle and then from there then you can just keep going you know and and, and trying to get in, getting involved in, in larger project but i think uh it's it's important to to do to be able to complete your, your you know your, your, your tasks i mean if, if you think that if, if you if you try to do something that it, it, it's just too too very demanding and time consuming you might not end up you know happy with the result
0: sure no i think i think that's well said um you know and that that's of course balanced with you know the idea that it's okay to dream big and have a vision for something but you have to walk before you can run <laughs> um so uh but no i think that that's good that that's that, that's well said exactly <laughs> Um, Well, look, you know, uh, our our time is quickly going. But one thing I I definitely have to ask you about before uh, we we get to our our sort of speed round questions is the way that you and I met uh, racial equality for arbitration lawyers or real, um, which is an organization and initiative that's been very important to my heart and something I've been glad to work alongside you with. and for those of you that don't know, it, it's an initiative to to bring greater ethnic, cultural, and geographic diversity into the arbitration practice in international dispute resolution space. So, uh, Fernando, when, when you first heard about this, what Karina, Reka, and Kabir were doing, um, what prompted you to get involved?
1: Well, I mean, I think uh, it's, I was very interested. I mean, I mean, I... Kabir is a former colleague of mine, and he mentioned, you know, the, you know, these these organization that they were, you know, they were working on, they were thinking about creating, and you know, he, he in a way, you know, asked me if I, I would be interested in being, you know, at the steering committee of that organization, and I, I said yes. I mean, as the, from from the very, you know, beginning, I thought it was a great initiative. I think one of the problems in in investor-state arbitration in particular, and international commercial arbitration also, but is also the lack of diversity, and I think that affects. Not only, let's say, the people that you see, but also the decision-making process. Because in order to get, let's say, I mean, more diverse, let's say, if you get a more diverse panel, if you get, you know, more diverse council, you also, you know, would start, I think, feeling that that the system is is going to be fair, you know, more fair in a way, uh, and 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 probably decisions are going to be to be better. I mean, I think it, 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 it helps also getting, you know, having other views. And I also think that that especially in this field is a is, is not a very diverse field. I mean, especially investor state arbitration in particular, the pool is very limited. And I feel and as we're discussing all these other issues, double doubleheading, you know, um, legitimate of the system, I think definitely uh, diversity is one of the big issues that we have to really work on in order to to have a better system. So that's why I think you know it's it's great that Rio is trying to you know to promote diversity. Obviously it's more ethnic diversity, but I think it also is promoting diversity in all all respects, right? I mean from every sort of diversity. And I think that's very important, uh especially if if we want this system to you know to evolve.
0: No, I I think that's right. And um talking about what we were just discussing a moment ago, um it's hard to believe the real has already, you know, been around for more than a year, and you know that we're giving out scholarships. We have mentoring. I'm um, having events all over the world, and that's been a, a really great sort of collective effort um, across the globe. But it started small, <laughs> literally with just a couple oh, of yeah, calls. Definitely.
1: exactly. Um, that, that's a,
0: that's
1: a good example of what we're discussing. I
0: think. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I look forward. to, Well, yeah, I guess we haven't like, had an in prop an in person real event, but I mean that's got to be on the horizon, right? We all got to get in the same room at some point.
1: Oh, yeah, that would be great. We do have to do that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, listen, uh, one final question here that I kind of have in this, this this sort of targeted questioning. Um, I want you to take out your crystal ball and I want you to imagine um, what predictions you might have for the international arbitration field over, let's say, I don't know, the next five years, next 10 years. Any predictions you might have uh, for, for the field?
1: Well, I think one one thing that is definitely, I mean, it's happening now, it's not like a prediction, but it's happening, is, you know, Mm -hmm. you will see an evolution and, you know, changes in the rules of arbitration. I mean, getting more sophisticated, more, you know, nuanced. I mean, a lot of things, issues that initially, you know, people did not think about. Now they, after, you know, with some experience, they they start seeing that, you know, that changes are needed or or, or you need, you know, to, to, to take into account things that you did not take into account before. So that's why we're seeing... For example, a tendency to have, you know, also not only in, in arbitration rules, but especially in the field of investor state, in, in, you know, when countries are signing new investment treaties, you see that all the rules are more sophisticated, are more complex. They're trying to, for example, promote transparency in a lot of senses, to have early dismissal mechanisms in all these new treaties and some of these, uh, you know, these arbitration rules, for example, also to have um, consolidation sort of. Uh, Mechanisms as as well. I think all these rules. Uh, what what we're gonna see is uh, a change in rules, and also to promote that that would that would you know try to to promote efficiency. I think also for example now the pandemic and, and we we're seeing in the most recent versions of all these rules are also trying to promote, for example, uh, re, you know the possibility of doing remote remote hearings and all and, and also you know all these these campaigns like green arbitration is trying to promote you know using. More digital uh, way, uh, you know, of of doing filings and 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 hearings. So that's that's one thing that I think we're gonna see. And also from from a, from a perspective of investor state arbitration, another thing that I think you will see and we're seeing in the new new treaties is is try to establish more clearly, you know, all the standards of protection. Because after you know decisions of tribunals that sometimes have you know interpreted a lot of these treaty provisions very broadly. You know, we see how now states are getting concerned about you know that that's going to you know affect their right to regulate and 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 they are trying to be more specific about what these standards mean, what what are the thresholds that need to be you know passed in order for these for these uh, for these standards to be violated. For example, trying to put uh, a limit to the to the MFN you know most of nation sort of of clauses, and and also trying to establish, for example, rules in terms of, of, of the arbitrators who are going to you know to be appointed in, in the tribunals, trying to, to, to have, uh, let's say, more limitations on who who could be on tribunals. <coughs> Excuse me. And, and then, um, and I think that's where we're going. We're going to more transparency, to more complex rules, uh, more sophisticated rules, and more diversity.
0: Yeah. No, I
1: think that that's right.
0: Um, Perhaps this is a loaded question, but it's a follow-up to to that sort of uh, uh, future-seeking sort of uh, thought process. Um, if you could change one thing about the international arbitration field or practice,
1: what would that be? If you had magic wand, you could just do whatever you wanted. Well, I think I think the one I would change. I mean, and it's all related to what we are discussing before is uh, the pool of arbitrators. Sure. I think if we if we are able to, as you know, as as you know, as as a field to expand and to and to and to you know with new names coming from different regions of, of the world, different ethnicity, you know, uh, just to expand the di- diverse pool of arbiters, I think we're going to start seeing different decisions and 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 and, and decisions that that take you. I mean, because it, it's true. I mean, it's 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 undeniable that. Uh, when decisions consciously or unconsciously in a way show some sort of an ideology of the person who is deciding, the decision maker. So if if you do expand the number and and also the background of the decision makers, I mean everyone you know consciously or unconsciously have that you know that carry that ideology with them. So I think if you expand that, you will start seeing you know uh, more diverse decisions with that would that would also you know have you know just 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 decide differently this uh just see some issues in a different way that we're seeing them today, and I think that would be the the biggest change. I mean, just expanding the pool of arbitrators and trying to to include in that pool people with different backgrounds because that would affect the, the final decisions
0: well, sure. I mean, I think what we all know again is that. You know, the world is a lot more diverse than the same couple of dozen or three dozen people that we see appointed to um, the same cases over and over again. So, I mean, I think that's well said and that would be a a fine goal that we can imagine and aim for one day. Um, All right. Well, look, let's take a step back and um, let's have some fun. Let's 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 go through a little bit of a a speed round. These are questions we like to to wrap up uh, with our our guest on. So um, first, um, this is kind of a, a broad question. Um, As your career has developed and you've done a number of things um, across jurisdictions, who have been some of the role models, mentors, guiding forces or influences um, on your career?
1: Well, I think, um, you know, how many I mean, when I was, you know, at NYU, I think, you know, Professor Andreas Lowenfeld was sort of a mentor when I was, you know, kind of getting into this field. But then, uh, you know, at Curtis, I think, you know, George Cahale, who is, who is the managing partner, I, I got to work a lot with him. He was, you know, a real mentor as well when, when it comes to, you know, to how really to, to be, you know, a lawyer and, and, and how to argue these cases, how to, you know, develop strategies. Uh, also some others like, you know, Ben Persiozi or Claudia furos Peterson nowadays. I think a lot of the partners at, at the firm have been real mentors and helped me, you know, and well, kind of like who I am today is because also how, you know, how they taught me a lot of things. Oh,
0: no, sure. No, the, the, those are great. Um, you know, from professors to uh, the to, to colleagues. Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of us would, would admit that we have guiding forces from all over the place. Uh, no, that's good. That's fair enough. Fair enough. Um, what's on your bookshelf right now? What are you reading?
1: Well, I haven't. Honestly, what what I the last book I read was was more work related. I, I did a book review of uh, of a book for um, uh, Guzman Harten, which is called the foreign um, the the problem with foreign protection invest foreign protect for foreign investment protection foreign investor protection. Uh, uh, and and that was the last thing I read. I also do a lot of reading with respect. I mean, not. I've done a lot of like reading with respect to travel. I like to travel and when I when I travel, I do like to do a lot of reading about the place I'm going to and and you know things. Uh I haven't done much lately because of the pandemic, honestly. That was not possible. But I always I, I always like sort of that's like my, my other passion. I mean like, you know, traveling and also reading about, you know, places or 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 or, or, or the things I'm going to see or the history behind where I'm gonna go. So that's that's sort of a arena. Also enjoy doing doing very much.
0: Absolutely no. I mean that makes sense. And well, speaking of travel, we got to get you over here to Europe sometime. Say hello and enjoy the uh, summer. <laughs> yeah, that would be, be great. I have to find a good excuse to go there. Exactly, exactly. Um, in a similar vein, um, not reading, but what, what kind of music are you into? What are some of your favorite artists?
1: uh yeah some of my favorite i mean I, I i like rock i mean i i i i i like a very big fan of you know u2 like muse Coldplay, dave matthew's band like you know different I, I that's sort of the music i i like to listen to i mean obviously you know you, you get you know changing now I, I get to use a lot more let's say to listen to a lot of more of like pop or different things because of my kids sometimes they take control of the of the music for example when when we are at <laughs> when, when we're driving someplace so I don't get, you know, to to control that. So I, it's good because you also get to listen to different things that you know that artists which I never heard of before because I'm probably you know different generation. But you know you get you get to be up to date sometimes with 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 music when you know when you have kids taking control of the of your car <laughs> of your music and yeah. the car
0: absolutely no i mean and look growing up i remember that was that was a big no-no you can't touch can't touch dad's radio you gotta leave it right there
1: (laughs) (laughs) well nowadays i don't think that's not that changed (laughs) (laughs)
0: um okay um let's see let's say you were approached by a current student a recent graduate maybe someone looking to break into the field um what advice would you give them if they were looking to Maybe not just specifically investor state, because we talked about that a little bit already, but more broadly international arbitration. what kind of advice would you give them?
1: Well, I mean, I think as the general advice would be first you know just try to you know find I guess it you know, sort of, especially if you want to get into international arbitration I mean I think it's it's important to do some sort of postgraduate degree. I, I think it's very it's more difficult to break into without some sort of postgraduate degree. sometimes I would say find a suitable program that, you know, that, that, you know, that's because not every program is, you know, it, they it, it will be, you know, good for whatever, you know, the person wants to study. If they want to do certain area of law, that would be, you know, there are better programs than others. So just first do a lot of research, find, you know, a program that, you know, that you would like, if you want to study something in particular, try to take advantage of all the, you know, not only of, 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 the actual knowledge, but also of the contacts of, you know, of, you know, exposure to different, you know, professors at the field, that you know that 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 you're studying. Try to take advantage of you know of also of the possibility of networking, of going to conferences. Try to know you know the field better, and then uh, and after that, obviously you know also try to know you know where to apply, where you know you can what you want, where do you want to go? I mean, for example, one good one one thing that I've seen, especially in arbitration, not investors' but in general in arbitration, is people who, for example, start uh initially working in uh, one institution like an arbitration institution first right i mean internally and then you get to know exactly how the institution works and 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 you get to know a lot of people at the field and then sometimes from there people move you know to private practice so there's not one one route, one you know size fits all let's say i mean i think everyone should know where they want to go or what would they like and then try to sort of you know tailor their path uh towards that i mean if if you if if, if depending on, on on your on your field but definitely there is a lot of research involved you have to know exactly you know what 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 are the people at the field you know where should i you know what should i study what should i do i think you you, you should first do all of that research and then from there stru- start you know trying to to see what you want to do obviously there is a, a big you know as, as we always say, lack factor. I mean, some people, you know, do everything that they, they they should do, and not necessarily they get initially the dream job that they would like. But I think perseverance is also important. I mean, because sometimes you don't get what you want today, but you, you keep preparing yourself, and, and you might be there in a few years, right? So also it's important not to give up.
0: Oh, absolutely! No, I, I think that, that that that's fantastic advice, and that's something that we've heard from some of our other guests on the show. But it's um, it's not like there's one specific path or a magic formula to break an in international arbitration, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, let's see. Uh, before we get into our last couple of questions, um, you know, one of the things that we talked about during uh, the, the the main part of the show was, you know, managing your time to get things done. Something else I'd be curious about is, you know, the other part of that is maintaining your physical and your mental health. What are some things that you do in order to try and um, try and balance those things
1: out? Uh, yeah, well, I try to do some uh, to exercise a little bit, you know, just you know, some sort of basic, you know, exercise every day a little bit. I mean, running or some, you know, some you know push-ups, you know, pull-ups, uh, and then all <laughs> those 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 things. Uh, just to keep a little bit you know fit but also uh that's from more like a health i mean just playing some soccer or football whatever you like to call it (laughs) but uh but uh i I do like that very much as well but uh from a more mental i would say you know health perspective i do you know i like spending time with you know with my family you know friends kids i think sometimes especially during the weekends having some time off helps a lot because when you're you know just when you're twenty four hours, you know, you you know, just involved, you know, in or in in work issues or you know, work related issues is very difficult for you, then I mean you get, you know, kind of a burnout, very stressed. And then I think you need that sort of uh, also that time, you know, to take time off to do, you know, to to spend time with, you know, family, friends and to do some other activities that would, you know, would probably make you more efficient as well. Because if you don't do that every you know every once in a while, then it's very difficult to keep up the pace.
0: No, that that's well said. Um, and well, look, I think all of us have now that it's been two years of pandemic have all fluctuated between our fitness levels <laughs> during the yes, pandemic. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, but but I think it's important, you know, to, to find some time to to take a step back from work to work your physical muscles out, your mental work muscles out outside of your your day to day operations. Um, staying right there on that topic, and this is um, one of our last two questions. Um, let's say that it's 5 p.m. on a Friday, uh, that you somehow don't have any pesky clients, you know, asking you to do things over the weekend, and you have a completely uh, free slate. What does your ideal weekend look like? Well,
1: it's, uh, you know, it's it depends, but generally we would, would involve, I would say, you know, spending some time with, with 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 my with my kids, going out, you know, going to a restaurant, going to a park. Uh, going outside, also, kind of, you know, chilling out, you know, just doing some, you know, just watching, you know, a movie, you know, some Netflix, whatever. I think, uh, you know, spending time with people, uh, doing some sort of cultural activity, probably some something nice. I mean, if it's a long weekend, it would be great to go outside of the city a little bit as well, if that's a possibility. But I mean, definitely, just just spending time with people and enjoying, uh, and you know, enjoying that that free time, some way or another, where you can really, you know, relax and, and think about other things, not really to work. Speaking of Netflix, what are you watching on Netflix? What did I watch? Well, I, I was watching, well, not Netflix specifically, but I think I, I was the last thing I watched was uh, an Apple Plus series called um, Severance. That was I, was, I think was the last. That thing I watched that i I, I can remember, but I was watching some you know some movies recently and some and some some other uh series i mean for example what did I watch lately I think that's what the one i I, I haven't finished yet that's the one I remember right now
0: yeah okay no that's fair enough fair enough um i have like a, a mile long list of things i want to watch on netflix or disney or hulu or whatever and i just never get to them. i watch like one episode and i say oh, i'll come back in a month and that's what happens
1: yeah <laughs> exactly it's, it's a
0: well, lot of well, questions listen, well listen fernando one final question for you um do you have any shout outs any tips of the cap that you want to give to the listeners at home um uh...
1: Well, just uh just try to like, you know, you mean any tips in general for, for all our No, our no, clients? I mean someone you want to name drop. Anyone you get a shout out to. Oh, okay, but. okay, shout out, yeah. okay, okay. Well no, I just I just, you know, acknowledgments and thank obviously, you know, my, my family for the patience sometimes because sometimes, you know, being in this field means a lot of traveling, a lot of time that you're not not with with them, you know, my wife and my kids especially. you know, also you have to sacrifice, you know, a lot to, to be you know to, to be uh, in this field and to be a lawyer in general. I think it's it's you know it's very demanding demanding uh, profession in general. And and also you know my parents, my colleagues at, at, at you know at the law firm who also have al- always been very helpful and, and 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 you know and and mentors and 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 thank you for inviting <laughs> me to this show, which was you know very a lot of fun
0: no it, this was great i mean and like it always happens the time just zooms by but um no this was a fun conversation and we'll, we'll make sure to uh to uh to tag um, some folks here on the in the in the post and um look fernando look we're at the end of an hour uh of our time together today but thank you so much for coming by the show really appreciate you being here uh,
1: thanks for invitation Chris. It, was, it was a, a pleasure to meet of you. course you want to sign us off sure i am fernando tupa and there is no disputing it, you are listening to Tales of the Tribunal.
0: Great. Thank you so much, Fernando. And we will see y'all next time. Well, well, that was a great conversation with Fernando. He is so knowledgeable about investor state disputes and especially about managing the conversations going on in the field. From a public perception standpoint to the impacts and needs to mitigate double heading to the international arbitration field more broadly. I wish we'd had more time, but we'll have to have Fernando back on another occasion. In just a couple of weeks. One that I can't say too much about right now, and it's been on the works for a while to get put together. But You know, it's a big one, and it was a fun one to do, and I can't wait to share it with you. So, you just keep your eyes checking on the news feed here, and you'll see it once we announce it here in the next week or so. Today's episode was brought to you by MoBeta Solutions. Intro and outro music were done by Joshua and Jaden Campbell. That's it for this week, and until next week, thanks for listening to Tales of the Tribunal. None of the views shared on today or any episode of Tales of the Tribunal is presented as legal advice nor advice of any kind. No compensation was provided to any person or party for their appearance on the show, nor do any of the statements made represent any particular organization, legal position, or viewpoint. All interviewees appear on an arm's length basis, and their appearances should not be construed as any bias or preferred affiliation with the host or host's employer. All rights reserved.